The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. So this is, things, are, things seem to be going all right. You know, you're into it. You know, the other person's into it. Okay, you're digging, you're digging this action a little bit. But then maybe the other person, uh, you know, maybe uh, you hear that, yeah, they, they went out with somebody else. As, as well, or, you know, maybe you caught him checking out one of your hot friends, I don't know, so, at this point, uh, after there's been the coffee date, and maybe a little mini golf or frisbee, you need to have one of those things that we might call uh, a DTR, define the relationship, right, so you gotta, you gotta have this DTR to establish uh, that, you, you, what are the rules of this thing, is this gonna be me and you, is this gonna be one on one? Uh, to establish that, you know, uh, there are other options out there, uh, but I'm not going to pursue them. Uh, this is, this is going to be one-on-one for right now. I share this scenario, one that perhaps is pretty common to some, maybe not so common to others, uh, because what we're going to look at as we continue our series tonight is, is a little bit of a spiritual DTR that is happening uh, as, as we are given uh, the Ten Commandments. So we continue our uh, exploration of the book of Exodus by looking tonight more at the first and second commandments and how these laws that were given by God to the people of Israel invite uh, those who hear it to find meaning in reality, to find meaning in reality and to allow that meaning that is shaped in reality to really form how it is that we live and behave. And so that's what we're going to look at as we continue uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, the, the 20th chapter tonight. Let me pray for us as we get started tonight. Gracious God, give us the ears uh, to hear and to understand what you have spoken to your people long ago. Lord, that these commandments exist and continue to guide and order our lives is a mystery and a gift that we are thankful for. So help us now as we seek to know you, the God of these commandments, uh, more as we come this evening. Amen. Okay, as we get started, before we get into our text tonight, I think it's worth a little bit of time to, re- to refresh our memories about the God that we have encountered throughout the book of Exodus this summer because there are essentially three key things that happen that you need to realize if you're ever going to have a, a shot at understanding the, the depth of the entire biblical narrative, okay? And, and so, so these three things, if you take nothing else, or if you joined us kind of in the middle of the summer, I'm going to do my best to, to kind of give you these three things that you need to hold on to. And the, the first one is, is this, that, God's, that, that what has happened here is, is God has delivered his people from slavery, out of captivity from the hands of the Egyptians. Okay? Two is the return of the presence of God to his people. First to Moses and what we saw in that that narrative of Moses and and this burning bush. And then second uh, to the multitudes at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And then third, finally, the giving of the law, which is what we're looking at here. So throughout the book of Exodus, we've seen, uh, the God, we've seen God rescue and deliver, redeem his people from this place of, of evil and offer them salvation into a new place. Okay? Key to understanding all of the biblical narrative. Second, God's presence returns. We, have, we get to see this relational God that says, I'm, I'm with you. And then third, in what we have here, are these, these, this covenant, this law, this agreement that says, here is how we are going to define the relationship. Let's have this thing be narrow. Because when you think about that, that DTR that, that I'm talking about, even when it happens in, in romance, you know, after the pitch and putt at Green Lake, what makes romance special is, by, is the fact that it is by its very nature, very narrow. Without that narrowness, what makes, uh, what makes uh, romance or dating any different than just friendship? No, it is in that narrowness that things happen. And we're going to explore a little bit of, of those implications tonight. So, uh, hold on to those, uh, those three things that have happened that define Israel as a people in relationship to God. That is the thesis we've been looking at all summer. That we are looking in the Old Testament at a, at a God that is profoundly and deeply relational. Okay, so we pick it up uh, tonight. Exodus 20, beginning at the first verse. We're not going to uh, cover a whole bunch of scripture tonight, but we're going to talk a lot about, uh, in particular, these six verses. So it starts off by saying this. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Those 19 chapters that I just paraphrased for you. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. Second is this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The thesis of what we've been working with throughout this summer series is the whole idea of relationship before rules. Those chapters leading up to this point has shown us the way all of these epic tales of how God has redeemed, that is to say, rescued and saved Israel from slavery and the evils that they experienced in Egypt. It's an incredible story that we get to see where God puts a priority on a relationship with these folks that we call and we know as the Israelites. The beginning of these commandments simply reminds us that what you are about to hear does not come from some sort of, of absentee landlord or arbitrary deity. The text tells us, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is God saying, I know you. I know you. I know where you've been and I've delivered for you what you need. So in the preamble of these Ten Commandments, what you need to remember as you hear these words is that what God says and what God does are totally connected. I am the God who did this. 
And so what I'm about to tell you holds a little bit of weight. There was relationship, there was action before these Ten Commandments are given. For those that have been coming to the end all summer, you can observe what the Israelites received in the first 19 chapters was how God rescued and delivered and freed the Israelites, redeemed them, before this final marker, these ten imperatives on how they might relive, how they might live in relationship to a relational God. Okay, so this is the covenant, this giving of the law, this last, this third part that really marks the Israelites as, as this group of people that are in relationship to God. This uh, really reveals God's heart for how he desires to live with creation and how creation will live with each other. It gives these Israelites a way to be on the right road together with God. This is a lot of what Emily talked about last week. And that's what the first commandment in part does for us. It elevates the supremacy of the Lord over and above any other Egyptian deity or quick fix that, that they might have been fascinated or come across in their, in their time uh, in Egypt. It is to say that God is quite subtly in these commandments, but quite explicitly also saying, you are mine. It's me and you, baby. None, none of this going after the quick fixes or these, these, these uh, no-gods that you met in Egypt. So we move to the second commandment, which is where we're going to spend most of our time here this evening. And we take the same point, the same, uh, the warning that's embedded here to the next level. So again, the second part of the law reads this. Let me repeat it for you. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. When you hear that word jealous, think of of somebody that is paying attention, that is really concerned, um, that, that cares about that. Think, think about this um, in a bit of a positive context when you're thinking about it in terms of God. Okay? Then, then a very difficult warning that follows. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Pretty tough right there. Third and fourth generation. Really that steep? But hear the blessing that follows. Okay? But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. In the second commandment, we hear an encouragement that focuses more directly on these Israelites, on God's people, on the people that hear this commandment. It confronts the human need for a source from which to make sense of life, to have a little bit of, of meaning. But it gives a warning as well on where we might go searching for that meaning. Certainly in their years of, of captivity, they saw, you've you got to understand that, that in Egypt, they, they had gods for, for so many things. It was a very pantheistic culture. So, so the Israelites have observed for years uh, the worship of, of these deities that Egyptians are reaching out to in order that it might help them in their need right now. But it might change the next day. So they come from a culture that is very that is very prone to idols. And in fact, as, 
as Moses is getting these, these commandments, Aaron is, is melting a bunch of gold to begin uh, fabricating a golden calf that these same Israelites might bow down and worship to. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? A golden calf? Well, let's, uh, let's step back because I think we have a little bit of our own ridiculousness that, that we might see uh, as we're passing through a newsstand in an airport. Becky and I walked down to Safeway uh, today and we saw the same type of ridic- ridiculousness um, in the newsstand. Um, in some of the magazines and the promises that are given on, on magazines that you and I are familiar with, at the very least seeing, they, they tell us things and they also show us, uh, show us some promises. Let's take a look at some of these uh, right now. Okay, this one is particularly difficult for me. Okay, I'll fix your game now. Uh, I'm not somebody that, I'm not sure I like golf as much as I'm addicted to it. Uh, it just kind of keeps me, keeps me coming back and I am so prone to saying, okay, Yes, as a matter of fact, I do have a problem with my golf swing. And the promise of a quick fix is very nice. So uh, maybe a little bit of idolatry there for me. Okay, next one. Self. This is, a, this is a good one. Get your dream body now. One month to amazing. A sexy, confident you. I lost 130 pounds. Friends, you do all these things that will solve all your problems, right? So just pick up, pick up this magazine Make it happen, you'll be good. Next. All right, fitness. This was another really, really good one. Flat abs fast. Shortcut moves to a hot summer body. Kick up your confidence. All right, weird. This is, how can you not pick this up? Seven fresh and healthy dinners. All right, that's good. We like that. 50 best foods. Get slim. Ah, nice. Without the gym. 45 bucks. Paying proof for your workout. Pick it up. Okay, this is going to, this is going to give us the easy way into being totally fulfilled and saved and delivered, right? In fact, uh, this would probably be a good place to, uh, to stop. Becky, after we saw this, said, you have to check this out. Because um, when, when you open up one of these magazines, you then get, um, you know, there's the postcard that you're supposed to fill out. And he, so here is continuing what, what fitness is trying to tell us. Okay, it says, just look what you can do with two free years of fitness. One, blast your body fat, stay motivated, included. Two, splurge on your favorites without guilt, included. Keep your body strong and healthy, included. Reach all your goals, included. Cut stress and take control of your life, included. Dude. Fitness magazine has got got it all figured out. Were there any? Do we need? Oh, okay. I guess fitness didn't give us any financial advice. Uh, but if you need that, you can turn to Fortune. Retire rich. Just just be done with it already. All right. Get done. Make your money and not have to go to work. And there's probably another 20 magazines that have something about luxury on their title. Uh, well, right here, fortune just shows it to you. That luxury is going to solve all your problems. Friends, some of these promises that are being made on these magazines are as ridiculous as a golden calf. 
the promises made here are very, very significant when you think about it. What's the magazine that as you sit here, you find yourself kind of wanting to pick up? If I'm to be really honest with myself, and perhaps in some of the covers that I didn't show, uh, there is part of me that, that would love to look like the guys that you see on the cover of Men's Health. I wonder what that would feel like. I wonder what it would, what it would look like. I wonder what that magazine would tell me about where I need to be right now or in a year so that I might retire rich and not have to stress out about anything or worry about anything. These are temptations that I face as well. I wonder if I would be happier if I picked up all these things. And we see, I feel like every edition of, say, Men's Health or Cosmo that I see, there's uh, a long list of learn uh, 100 sex secrets every month. What would it be like to actually know these? My question is, if they publish these every month, what makes them secrets anymore? And why do they have to keep repeating them over and over again if they are so great? You see, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the diet that promises to change your life. Not that it wouldn't have some good things. Not that those things that we just read about staying strong and being in shape wouldn't be good, but they can't save us. They can't redeem us. And if you were to, as you're sitting here right now, to be really honest with yourself, do you look for your workout to give you meaning? Do you look for the way that you look to give you meaning? The career that you're going to have, is it to have a lot of, give you a lot of money so that you can buy a lot of stuff so that you can retire rich and never have to worry about it again? What do you expect from those things? They're not all bad things, but they cannot save us. I call this out because this is where I think we begin to scratch on what idols are and what idolatry is. You see, the word in the Old Testament Hebrew that ends up being translated into idol uh, quite literally means shadow. Now, the shadow, it, it would be as, as if uh, the shadow of me right here, you were chasing after that instead of perhaps being in conversation or relationship with me. The shadow is just a faint, faint contrast of the real thing. And so what idolatry is, is when there is this, this thing that is real and can be good, that workout, a healthy diet, stewarding money well, but we chase after the shadow, that which is not going to give us meaning. A mentor of mine quoting a, a professor says that idolatry happens when one takes a slice of created reality, so takes something that is real, and then demands a miracle from it. That is exactly what those promises that we just heard and saw on the front of those magazines was doing. It was taking things that, by and large, people know are really good. That's why we buy them, right? Yes, I know a workout is good for me. 
I know that having a good job in financial security is good for me. But we expect, when we begin to expect a miracle from it, when we begin looking for that as our, uh, as our source of where our value comes from or where we get meaning, that's when we begin to move towards idolatry. Here's the problem. Is when we look at these things that promise the perfect golf swing or give us all the romance secrets, they might just work. They might just actually work. In these magazines, my my guess is that if you read them and took them to heart and actually started doing them, yeah, the abs would start to pop up. You'd lose the 130 pounds. You might even get the attention uh, of somebody that you were trying to get the attention of because of this change in your life. But that is precisely the problem with idolatry that I think the Lord is, is trying to get the attention of His people in saying, you do become exactly what you pursue in idolatry. Did any of you have, have idols when you were growing up? Anybody, you know, I know for me, yeah, thank you, Andy. Thank you for that honesty. You shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I did. I had a couple. Uh, The first one was a wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks named Steve Largent. He uh, played for the Hawks in the 70s and 80s, is now in the Pro Football uh, Hall of Fame. Number 80 was the number that I always uh, wanted to wear. And wide receiver was the position I always wanted to play. And I, you know, I always tried to, um, you know, like I remember seeing where Steve, it's not in this picture, would wear his wristbands. And I'd always try to put mine in the same place. Or if he had tape on his fingers, I'd want to put tape on my fingers. Okay, I tried to, I really tried to mimic Steve Largent. So he was really the first big sports idol that I have. But then came along Ken Griffey Jr. when I was about 13. And all of a sudden, uh, I wanted to start wearing my hat uh, backwards. Uh, when I was playing outfield, when there would be a fly ball, I'd try to walk over it, slap my glove on my, uh, on my thigh before I made the catch, and then, you know, throw the ball back in. Or, um, you know, I, I, would, I would try to, to emulate his left-handed swing, even though I was a right-hander. But probably, probably the, most, uh, the most heinous incident came when... Uh, it, thir- I was 13 and we're playing, I'm uh, playing Junior Babe Ruth uh, in this game. I'm, I've never really been great at baseball, but I was having a great year. Let's, let's be totally honest here. And uh, I was, uh, you know, up at bat facing one of my close friends who served one up and I demolished it. Okay, I jumped all over this pitch, you know, swing. And as that happens, I immediately get into... Um, to my Griffey walk as I'm admiring the fly of the ball, okay? And as, that, as, as I'm admiring the fly of the ball, kind of, you know, trying to style it out like Junior, maybe show up my friend a little bit, um, I'm just enjoying myself until the ball hits the top of the fence, okay? I thought it was a home run. It wasn't, at which point I'm pretty sure I probably dropped an explicative, took off sprinting before I was promptly thrown out at second base, okay? So... I 
I was not good enough to do a Griffey walk down to first base. But what happened in my idolatry, and, you know, just if anybody's wondering, I don't think that for emulating somebody like Junior, I'm, I'm going to go to hell. I don't think that that's what we're doing. But I, I use this to illustrate the point and the warning that we're getting out here is that we do begin to look like our idols. We do begin to look like that. And the problem is, I'm not junior. That is not who God created me to be. I'm not created to look like money. Much as I would, if I have any sort of idol now, it would probably be somebody like Lance Armstrong. And I'm not Lance. Much as I would love to, uh, to, to win the yellow jersey, to win seven times, that's not it. And of course there are good things that, that there's this fine line between mentorship and idolatry. But when do we begin expecting miracles from it? When do we look for these things that we pursue, that perfect body, that perfect swing, the right job? the grades to get into the grad school that we want to be that which fulfills us. How do we start? How do, what is the fruit of that? What do our friends say about our lives when we begin to look like grades? When we begin to look like a paycheck? We're not grades or a paycheck. We are people created in the image of God. The pastor emeritus here at UPC, Earl Palmer, gave this great hint in helping us to understand and interpret the Ten Commandments. He said that while all these statements are phrased in the negative, things like, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a negative statement. You shall not create for yourself an image. Okay, So while these are negative statements, he says, look for the grand positive in these negative statements. Okay, what does that mean? It means that, that when, we, when we say we shall have no other gods before me, the grand positive is that we get to enter into a loving relationship with the one God of the universe. The grand positive, if I might give it a stab here at the second commandment, might be something like this. That you don't have to make for yourself an image. You don't... You don't have to make this out for yourself. Rather, I'll show you what the reality is because I'm passionate about you and I desire to bless and be with you for all generations, a thousand generations. The grand positive is God saying, I'll show you who you are and what the reality is. A big part of what the Ten Commandments do is reveal to us the heart of God. Perhaps we begin to grasp that a little bit more when we think of these grand positives. When we hear them not, not just as a no other gods, no images, you know, uh, these negative statements. But when we begin to see that, when we hear these negatives and start living, there is a great positive that follows. There's always these grand positives within the Ten Commandments. Your meaning comes out of reality. It's something, your meaning comes from something beyond a mere shadow. It comes from the creator of the universe and living in relationship with 
that creator. So the invitation of the second commandment is an invitation to that which is real. It is an invitation to authenticity, an authenticity that endures for the long haul. A a favorite author of mine says it like this, Dallas Willard. He says, God's desire for us is that we should live in Him, in union to Him. He sends among us the way to Himself. That shows us what, in His heart of hearts, God is really like. Indeed, what reality is really like. In its deepest nature and meaning, our universe is a community of boundless and totally competent love. Big statement. But what, what the, the heart of this message is, is that the reality of God is this boundless and unfailing love. And the commandments show us, reveal to us God's heart in, in getting to live with God in that love. God shows us this and gives us a phenomenal example of it in Jesus. Indeed, how this law is fulfilled. A law that outlines the love of God, love of neighbor, love of self, and love of creation is the sinless love of Jesus. This love is a real love. And real love that endures. But it does not promise that one will be successful or rich or hot. Reality includes pain and suffering, mystery, chaos, and uncertainty with a hope and promise of redemption. Remember the 19 chapters that precede this? That preceded these 20 commandments? Where we get to see a God of salvation. In our Lord's commentary on this law, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked those listening, what it is that we worry about? What will you wear? What will you eat? What will you drink? What is it that you sit here worried about tonight? Again, that whatever that might be, might be a clue on what might be an idol for you. But after Jesus says this, it's followed by a word of assurance when he says, Consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, for they are cared for. And God cares even more for you. Later on, Jesus uh, Continuing to teach, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus' invitation to be with him, to learn from him. To look like love, compassion, redemption, salvation. That's what we're called to look like. The warning of the second commandment is that you might look like your idols. When you create for yourself something and worship the shadow, you may just begin to look like it. And the call is to look like God, to be in union with a God that is shown to us in Jesus. And so we are pointed back 
to the first commandment in this very narrow relationship with the one God. And that relationship is that we are to live into uh, into this relationship with God and from that we find purpose and meaning and hope and redemption. The invitation of the second commandment is an invitation to live into something real and the reality is that we live into the love of Jesus that points us to this incredible relationship with God, our neighbors, ourselves, and all of creation. Our lives are not to be lived out in the shadows of idols, but in the light of Jesus in union with our Lord. And it is this table that reminds us of that. It offers us a tangible, real reminder of the love that we are called to. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Do this to remember me. This covenant that you can't do it on your own. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to lead you out of slavery. And then again after supper... He took the cup in the same way and said, This is the new covenant of my blood. Do this to remember me. And remember that I have poured my life out for you. It is a love that is real that goes the distance. As often as you take this real piece of bread and this real cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Again, The Apostle Paul reminds us that when we come to this table, it is an opportunity to reflect on God's love. And in doing so tonight, I encourage us to confess and think about what are the, the idols that we need to smash. That we need to allow the God of redemption to come in and tear away that which is false and replace it with that which is real.